Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Museopunks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Jeff, and I'm here, as always, with my wonderful co-producer, Suze. Hey, hey. Suze, how's it going? I'm <laughs> well. How are you, Jeff? Doing, doing well, doing well. It's been too long. It actually has been too long because, of course, we, we we missed an episode when I was moving country and sort of getting caught up in trying to start a whole new life. So Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, it's sometimes you just need to take a hiatus, get settled, um, you know, let your creative juices kind of reset themselves and, and then start back fresh. So maybe we can consider this kind of like... Season two, episode one oh, of Museo Punks. I like it. I think that's a really good way of viewing it. And actually, it's a nice split between the ones that we were doing when I was in Australia and the ones here. Season two works perfectly for me. Yeah, perfect. So we'll, we'll consider that um, <laughs> consider that the, the, the labeling moving forward. But you know what, Suze? Um, now that you're in America, I, I noticed an, on Twitter last night that you went bowling. <laughs> I didn't go bowling. I went duck pin bowling. Oh, what is that? Duck pin bowling is, it's like 10 pin bowling, but the pins are smaller. And so when 10 pin bowling, if you bowl the ball um, and you hit, say, the front one of the triangle, all of the rest tend to fall. Duck pin is not like that. Oh. No, it defies all laws of (laughs) physics. The the pins are much smaller and they don't seem to knock each other out in the same way. It's, It's less like dominant and more like randomly falling oh. pins. So is this a Baltimore thing or what? <laughs> I've never it, heard of it. Really? Well, it was a very yeah. old school lane. And whilst I was, I have to say, we were also drinking duck pin beer, which okay. is a Baltimore beer brand. So maybe it is a Baltimore thing. Interesting. So um, <laughs> I, I'm looking at the duck pin bowling Wikipedia page right now. We're going to drop a, drop a <laughs> link to that in the show notes for anyone listening who might be curious. Um, but I have to say I cool. improved. I, I yeah. started very terribly at duck pin bowling, but my, the final game we were playing Australia versus USA. We were fighting for our countries, and unfortunately Australia lost, but only by three points. And considering how much worse I'd done in the previous games, this was quite a good thing. <laughs> nice, nice, cool. So you're settling in well, and you're 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 both in the city and at your museum, right? Absolutely. I mean, Baltimore is actually. I'm I'm fascinated by this city. It's in some ways, it's so dynamic. It, I really hadn't expected to find it to be as creative, as arts-driven, as dynamic as I've already found it. Yeah. And then to be working in the museum, it's interesting to me how much, when I talk to people from around the city, people really do recognise, pay attention to, hold hold the muse- museum in high esteem. And that's actually it's a really lovely thing to have that reaction from people and to overhear yeah. people in the street talking about the museum and things like mm-hmm. that. Nice. I feel like it's kind of like in that sweet spot too, like along that kind of like New York, Philadelphia, DC kind of, you know, metro line, if you will. And it's right. kind of, it's, it's, it's not, it's a great location for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I have to say, I've been enjoying being on that metro line as well, because I've been getting to go to, you know, museums in, in DC and went to Philly as well. And nice. got some museums in Philadelphia and I'm going to New York this weekend. And so for me, I'm, I'm very much taking advantage <laughs> of, of being here. One, w- one city I noticed that's not on your list is Pittsburgh. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get. I, I will definitely get to Pittsburgh. I mean, how could I not come and see where you live, Jeff? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any, anytime, how's, anytime. How's all in your world? 
Everything's good. We're really busy at the museum. Uh, I've been traveling a lot. Um, when this episode airs, actually, uh, a team of us from my museum uh, will be in, in Europe um, f- filming a series of two documentaries uh, as part of um, this project that we're doing called the Hillman Photography Initiative, where we're looking at um, kind of the invisible aspects of photography. Um, and so the first uh, piece we'll be making is at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland, where wow. they're using, yeah, they're using um, photographic technologies to capture um, these subatomic um, collisions and reactions, which is really interesting. So we'll be at CERN filming, kind of have like all access, which is crazy with the place they invented the internet, you know, like it's like kind of legendary for me as like a kind of like a pilgrimage almost. But Wow. And, so and I cool. have to say, I've seen some of the sorts of photographs they do, um, certainly with some of the early um, chambers. There was a guy back home in Australia who had the most amazing tattoo. He was my barista. And uh-huh. there is there is a point to this. His tattoo was actually a visualization of one of the early bubble chamber colliders. And wow, the, nice. Like the visualization that it came out of that photography. Very and so cool. it's super interesting to me that what you're doing is now going and sort of documenting the next the next stages in that. Yeah, for sure. So we'll be there for um we'll be there quite a while in in Europe. So um you know, it's it'll be it'll be interesting uh to to kind of work there but also hopefully have some time to to see some areas of the world that I've that I've never been before. So Yeah, that um, is fantastic. Yeah. So I, I you know, uh so this episode I, I would what are we talking about this episode? Let's, <laughs> we're talking let's... about, uh, well, I, I was originally putting this as being that we were talking about 3D printing, a little bit about yeah. 3D scanning. But when I spoke to one of our guests, Tom Burtonwood, he actually suggested that a better way of talking about it is as digital fabrication. So let's say oh. that we're having an episode on digital fabrication. Very cool. Very cool. So you mentioned, uh, you know, we're talking to to Tom Burtonwood, uh, but yes. also we're talking to Liz Neely, who um, has an interesting background in this space. And she's, you know, she's uh, formerly of Art Institute of Chicago, now kind of managing an IMLS funded museums 3D grant, still somewhat affiliated with the institution. But um, they both have really interesting perspectives on this idea of digital fabrication. Yeah, absolutely. Let's kick into the interviews and see what they have to say. Liz Neely is focused on innovative means of using technology as a catalyst to inspire new ways of sharing museum stories, engaging audiences, publishing scholarship and preserving museum collections. Her enthusiasm for experimentation, creativity and DIY maker activities led her her to introduce 3D printing into museum practice at the Art Institute of Chicago. She is the project director for the IMLS-funded Museum 3D Grant, which is developing public programs using 3D printing. Liz is an active leader in the museum field, serving as president-elect for the Museum Computer Network, MCN Board, and secretary-treasurer for the New Media Consortium, uh, NMC Board. Liz, thanks so much for for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to work with the museo punks. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Now, we've just heard your bio, and it makes it really clear that your journey to 3D printing in the museum started with DIY maker activities. Can you tell us a little bit more about the journey that you took and the kind of tinkering and experimentation you were doing in order to to end up on a path to 3D? 
Yes, it was a, f- a wonderful journey, actually. Uh, it started at MCN uh, 2012. Um, it was in a workshop that actually, Seuss, you were in as well, and I think it was very impactful to a group of us because uh, Don Undine was also in that group, Erica Gengzai. So, and I think a lot of us ended up exploring in this way. And Dewey, it was a maker workshop um, about Arduino, and it really started getting my my head thinking outside of the computer, um, that we could really um, hack ourselves into trying new things. And um, so through that, it kind of, in my personal life, I started doing some creative things with, um, like, making some clothes with electronics and things like that and talking to other people in the, um, in the maker community. And at the same time, 3D was really emerging as part of that. So it was kind of part of the you can make things on your own, you can hack things to uh, get out of the computer, get out of digital, um, to make things happen in the real world. And so that was really what... Um, kind of tied me into a group of uh, 3D people and seeing what other people were doing and um, then starting to think about how that could work within our own museum. Nice. Liz, so uh, the the kind of trajectory of 3D printing, you said you kind of discovered and started playing around with it only in 2012, and it's only been a very short amount of time. How did, once you, once you kind of discovered, um, you know, 3D printing, how did you start to convey some of these ideas to your work in the museum? Like, how did you make that connection of, of, of 3D printing to, to objects in a museum? Well, it was, uh, I, I knew that it could be, that it was going to be useful for the museum, but I couldn't really actually put my finger on why. So, um, and I know that you're hearing from Tom Burtonwood as well. And so we started talking about it and thinking about just bringing bringing this equipment into the museum, having some pop-up 3D events, um, and just doing it in public places so that you could kind of hmm. see, it, see it in action, start seeing people's reactions to it, start seeing our curators and our conservators' reaction to it. So never do anything behind a closed door. Hmm. And... Um, it's, it's, there's something about 3D printing that even more than other maker activities that because it's so new, it really captivates people's interest and uh, everyone would start coming up with new ideas. So it, it just seemed like having this and just playing with it and having it in the space started giving us ideas inspire, and inspiring us to try different new things. I'm really curious about some of the reactions, the early reactions you got from both the public and, and say, um, you know, uh, curators or conservators at the museum. Like, are there any reactions that you can look to as being particularly memorable, having someone see this for the first time? It's, it's interesting because even though this has been a couple of years, I feel like every time we bring these out, people are still very, um, it's still such a new idea and such a, New. It's not a new technology, but it's newly in the hands of of people that can actually um, work that work at the museum that um, sure. have like. And I, I think that what really intrigues me about that is that people will walk by and they'll start seeing what's happening. And this this is across the board: a conservator, a curator, a um, a person from the public, someone from technology, a student um, that. That it seems like every there's something about it that inspires an idea of thinking about things differently, and and you know people start thinking, well, I could do this with that, or I could do that, and coming up with ideas. I know our packing um, 
uh, a, a, a professional from our packing department walked by and said, oh, I think this could really help with really fragile works of art. Or a conservator came down and visited the department and thought, oh, well, I wonder if this could take the place of some of our casting. So it was really about... Um, putting it in front of hmm. everyone and starting discussions. It's not, these aren't my ideas. These are ideas that we have this, this thing, this 3D printer that helps us like start a conversation that we wouldn't normally have in our daily lives at the museum. Right. I mean, you're talking then about all kinds of different projects. I mean, when you start talking about the, the person who packs your works, starting to see possibilities, there, then there's obviously a lot of depth to what can be done in the museum. So what kinds of projects has the AIC been working on and been involved with? So uh, the Art Institute has primarily been the larger project that we've been working on is the one that was funded by an IMLS uh, Sparks Ignite grant. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was was focused on um, how 3D printing and 3D printing the whole ecosystem could really be used in public programs to... Uh, enhance engagement with the collection. And this came about, or the spark of the idea came about when we were doing these pop-up um, 3D events and people would walk by or the the um, visitors to the museum would walk by. And even I would look at things differently after I scanned them or after I spent some time printing it. So there was a hunch that actually using this kind of technology and sharing it out with the world could help someone have a different and deeper relationship with um, with the collection and inspire creativity in this way based on the collection. So, but that was just a hunch. So, the grant is really about putting together a set of different programs. Um, it's a big collaboration with the museum education department, and um, and evaluating. So, we have an evaluator that really is helping us think through. What does it really mean? What are we really getting out of this? So that's been the big, huge projects that we've been doing this year. And then other experiments kind of happen on the side, and we try and learn from the project that the uh, public programs project, if we're making, if we're remaking replicas of the artwork, then just kind of working with um, conservation to see how that might um, help them or just kind of sharing what we, what we have going on so but the main focus is on this public programs that's fascinating the you know the evaluation of of all this and i'm sure it would be you know really interesting to see those those findings at the at the end of it can you talk a little bit about how you know obviously there's a lot of potential here and as you mentioned already it's it's very dispersed i mean from from uh, art handlers to educators to technologists how how have you kind of dispersed this tech this technology throughout an institution i mean are you are you holding like professional development like learning meetings or like how i mean to get people up and to speed and using this technology is it or is it kind of you know if you're interested you can find out how to do it online you know we, I, I definitely feel like, and, and I should mention that I'm no longer full-time at the Art Institute, um, but I am still um, directing this grant. But the way that when I was at the Art Institute, I saw my department, the Department of Digital Information and Access, as a place where we really were just kind of trying to share these ideas that um, come out in the in 
from the kind of digital community. And so, so I've always kind of seen myself as the, um, as a, uh, somewhat of a, uh, a traveling salesperson of um, of what what's there, trying to talk to people, listen to how they think it might work. So, um, as I mentioned, we did all of the pop ups in public and in places where many people would see us. Then, um, you know, I, I carry around my wares to almost every meeting, um, and um, <laughs> and yeah. So every meeting, there's some pretty. Um, my guess is uh, Don Undine does the same thing. And um, and engage the discussion, and then when we get a little bit deeper in, so for example, this 3D project was such a um, it's it's about it's six programs. Some of them are week long. Some of them are drop in. Some of them are tours for um, accessibility tours. In in that, then we we worked and made an advisory committee of everyone involved with any of the programs, so that we could not only learn things, but we could start discussing with each other. What um, what we're learning, what we're getting out of it. We've had guest speakers come in over Google Hangout, and then for that, we also do, do set up um, training programs or just kind of a you know an hour long workshop on scanning one two three D catch or on printing, and um, even have gone so far as to actually do a little bit of training with some of our um, uh, support boards. Uh, which is also really interesting and discussing with them um, how things work and um, just getting engaging interest across the board that way. Very cool. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm finding quite interesting, a few minutes ago you mentioned that um, working with 3D has changed the way that you understand objects. And I'm interested that you're doing these public programs around 3D printing in the museum. So are you finding that by having these capacities in a public place that it's changing the way people interact with art objects or that they engage with them? And does it then change the way you think about the art object within your own work? I think it's a bit of a mixed bag to a certain extent. Um, And It'll all come out when we really look at all of the data, but um, and we and we have had a lot of different programs. I think that certain programs where it's very it's less about it being a three D object, but like the accessibility programs, and we use replicas, um, uh, touchable replicas for um, blind and low sighted um, tour um, or visitors. And here, this is a group of people coming to the museum to hear a description of an artwork. That they um, they're they're coming and they're, they're standing next to the vitrine where it exists, but they weren't able to see it before. So, and and now we had quotes of people that can't see saying that they can now see the artwork for themselves and mm-hmm. that they can make their own decisions about it. So I think in that case they def that were definitely affecting the the relationship with the object. In some other cases. Um, you know, for for me, it from the get go, from the first time that I scanned an artwork, I noticed a heightened sense of awareness for it. So, for me, that I could get over the technology, and I still think that um, it's a in more generalized programs, it's certain people can ignore some of the flaws of technology, <laughs> and mm. and and get closer to the object, build a relationship, and. Other visitors and other people, um, that technology is actually a barrier because, especially three D 
3D technology is not, um, it's, it's not flawless yet. There are issues, there are glitches, there are flaws. So I think there are still certain personalities, such as myself, that can live with that, and then there are certain ones that can't. So I, I think that there are certain kind of programs that will be um, where using 3D in a very focused way is going to hit it out of the park every time. And for other programs, it's really about, until the technology is flawless, it's really about um, certain personalities that get, can get beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that's kind of evident is that you know remix culture goes hand in hand with maker culture and and 3D printing culture and I'm I'm wondering about your your take on you know this this idea of of modifying artworks through through these processes and and typically it's been you know artists and and technologists um playing around the most with in this area but how do you what do you see a museum's role here with with making 3d files available or i mean where do you see the museum fitting in to all of this i am a big advocate for access and having uh, giving 3d files out to the public so that that is just one deeper sense of access is important so that we can inspire creativity. Um, for generations and generations, galleries and, and museums have, have served as an inspiration point for people to modify and to remix and to change or copy and then make something different. And I, I just think that that is the way that we can really um, inspire creativity through the museum. So it's, it's really important. Um, the role that we can take is by providing access to those those um, those files so that they can do that. Now that's that's really difficult. Actually, we don't have even at the Art Institute we don't have three um, D three um, D models of all of our um, collection. And then you get into well, what level of quality? But I really think that what we, it's definitely a goal to give access to all these things and to help help our visitors and through public programs think about what it is and how to change it and how to use your own creativity to in this kind of to see the museum as this living thing this resource but that you're part of and that um it's it's really just an inspiration to make your life um more creative and better Hmm. um well what about i mean i think there's there's certainly been a certain amount of pushback in terms of 3d printing and particularly around this mashup culture idea though that you know, that museums shouldn't be enabling these kinds of mashups because it is sort of sacrilege to the art object. Um, What do you think about this idea? If we're talking about access, does it matter then what people do with these these digital files? I guess I, I don't subscribe to the fact that it's sacrilege. And so, and I think that even as now that we're letting that many museums are giving access to high-resolution images. And so 3D is just another version of that. And I honestly have not run into a lot of pushback as far as making these, uh, making these files available, make, giving access to 3D, of seeing what happens when someone um, remixes a, an object. I think the reaction that I've gotten more is, why or um, or why would we want to do this or um, a kind of dis- more of a dismissive tone than um, than an objection and I haven't heard much of that either I think that the real um, 
there there are real limitations. It's plastic uh, for now. Um, you yeah. know, it's low res for the most part. And so I think that more it gets more um, dismissed rather than um, a worrisome, at least in my experience. I know that that's not across the board. I wonder if that will change when these printers or when consumer accessible printers actually can have a better chance of reproducing artwork specifically and perfectly. Um, my guess is that they actually will have more issues mm. and more kind of concerns at that point. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, wrapping up here, Liz, I, I know this uh, technology itself um, is is not that new, but as far as being accessible to consumers, it, it is relatively new, just a, just a couple years old. Um, I, I want you to get out your crystal ball and and look at two years or maybe five years down the road. Where does three D printing sit in in the greater museum landscape, and wh- or where do you more precisely where do you hope it sits? Where do I hope it sits? It's probably a little different. Um... Well, I, I really hope that, um, or I really think that, especially the softwares um, to create our own files and to manipulate the files are just getting better and better and easier for people to use. And that's what's really important for really accessing and being able to modify and not just print out a copy of something someone else did. Um, there are a lot of free applications, and I feel like they're getting better and better. So, what what I see happening is that our you know f- people that have access to these tools are going to be um, are going to have like a different sense for being able to look at the world in three D. I think it's going to build more um, uh, appreciation for our three D art objects, actually. And what I would like to see is. In, especially if we think about in art museums, I don't think we've seen many maker spaces or more uh, programs about um, using technology and creativity. And I would really like to see more of more of that happen, so that we can really use it as a launch pad to create new artists or just new creative thinkers, and um, just do more of that and kind of keeping up. Three D printing is just one thing right now that everyone is excited about. It is very exciting. But I think that it also just the world is moving so quickly that we're just going to see more ways that we can all take control of the world around us in creative ways. And I would like the museum as this privileged spot of of having these um, things to be inspired from, whether it's in a science museum or art museum. Um, and also a privileged spot that it's in informal learning space. So we're not tied down to making sure we do the same thing every year, that we can be the nimble educators um, to supplement schools. Yeah. Liz, I think that sounds absolutely fantastic. I really love that idea and that vision of what the museum might be. Now, if people want to continue this conversation with you online, where can they find you? How can they track you down? Twitter's always a good place to get a hold of me. Um, I'm at Lily Zarina. I'm sure that... uh, um, Jeffrey and Seuss will put that um, on the on the blog, and um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Liz, for taking the time to chat with us about this uh, really great uh, space for innovation in the museums. I know um, it's it's ripe for uh, for progress, and we're looking forward to seeing what you and others do with it. Thanks. Great. Thank you. 
Tom Burtonwood is an artist and educator based in the Chicago area. He discovered 3D printing by way of the laser cutter and quickly became enamored by the alchemy of it all. He's the first Ryan Center artist in resident at the Art Institute of Chicago. Recent projects include the Orion, the world's first 3D printed book, which was featured on the Huffington Post, on Boing Boing, the Paris Review and TechCrunch. His 3D printed artworks have been exhibited by the Metropolitan Museum at World Maker Fair in New York and at the Bruce High Quality Foundation University in New York, Terrain Biennale in Oak Park, Medium Cool Book Fair in Chicago, Fuseworks and Front Room Gallery both in Brooklyn, New York, New Capital in Chicago and the Chicago Cultural Center. He's a contributor to Make Magazine and Tom also teaches at both the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and Columbia College Chicago. He's currently working on a new 3D printed book with Chicago cultural historian Tim Samuelson. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, a few seconds ago, you were telling me about what your day has involved. I think we might hear the squealing of a 3D printer in the background for some of some of today. What's been going on? What's been going wrong with today? Uh, well, today's just been business as usual. Um, I think that one of the things that's interesting about uh, being involved in 3D printing is you have to learn all kinds of uh, skill sets. And so all of a sudden, I, I need to know a little bit about electrical engineering, a little bit about mechanical engineering. I need to know about software. I need to know about hardware. I need to know about firmware. And I also need to make, hopefully, interesting artworks. And so all of a sudden, it's this big, big hybrid. And um, so today... Um, uh, just negligence on my part, I think, mostly. Um, I had a loose wire. Uh, it must have touched something. I ran what I was hoping would be quite a nice print. It stopped at the very first second. And, um, yeah, it just... It was very clear to me very quickly that something was badly wrong. And then from that point on, it was... A case of troubleshooting it. Uh, my assistant, uh, Sarabi uh, Kanga, who's working with me here in the museum, helped me, and we sort of chased down the problem, figured out that uh, the short had occurred on the um, the fan, uh, huh. a wire from the fan had shorted on the board. And then, thankfully, I had another board uh, that I wasn't using, and so uh, got that in place on the machine. And then, ever since then, I've been calibrating it, so... It's cool, but it's not what I was planning to do for four hours this afternoon. Yeah, I have to say this sounds like kind of a frustrating day. And this makes me wonder about using 3D as an artist. I mean, you you sort of talk about how you became interested in 3D after, you know, by way of the laser cutter. But this sounds like a kind of frustrating medium to be working with. Why? Well, it's not always like this. I mean, this is probably... You know, this machine has worked flawlessly for the last uh, month and probably three months prior to that. And as I said, it, you know, the, the biggest issue was negligence on my part, not really checking things over or maintenance in some ways. Right. So what is it then about 3D printing that makes it different from using other media? It is a, it is a, it is a frustrating medium because there is a lot of uh, technical challenges to it, um, I spent one of the projects that I've done here at the museum is uh, I built a Prusa uh, mm-hmm. rep wrap machine, um, Prusa i3. And so uh, the goal with that is uh, was to uh, figure out how to 
build this platform based upon this kit that I bought uh, from this friend of mine uh, who runs a website called botbuilder.net. And uh, so he sends out kits and then you follow the instructions and build them. And so my goal has been then to look at that kit and see how I could maybe make a derivation of that rep wrap um, mm-hmm. and make it more affordable for students you know, that I teach here in Chicago. Um, so there's those types of things. And then just, I guess, just pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, right? And just learning all this stuff. It's just constantly, uh, you know, you solve one problem and you start with the next one, really. Right. I mean, this makes me wonder about what then is unique to 3D that makes it different from working as an artist with different media. I mean, what is it about 3D that then is so interesting to you? Well, I mean, I think it's not so much about 3D printing. I mean, what I find fascinating about working in this field is this sort of convergence of um, two sort of key technologies. Uh, First, the 3D scanning, and then the 3D Mm. printing. And I think that instead of just talking about 3D printing, I think in some ways it's better to talk about digital fabrication. And so, you know, digital fabrication really is a sort of umbrella term that you know, it takes into account things like laser cutting and 3D printing and 3D scanning and uh, CNC milling and, uh, you know, a range of different technologies, uh, different inputs, different outputs, um, and also the 3D modeling. And so I've been very lucky. I mean, I think I'm just uh, very much the right place at the right time. I got interested in all this stuff about uh, three or four years ago, uh, followed my sort of, like, interest, started building my own machines, then bought some machines and sort of just sort of fell into it. But for me, the thing that really resonates is this idea of 3D scanning, being able to copy and paste, being able in, in 3D, being able to uh, take surfaces and objects from the real world, from museums, from uh, all kinds of different sources, and uh, join them together with the same facility. Somebody might cut out uh, images from a newspaper, from a magazine, or use Photoshop, or, or something like that. I mean... One of the things that I'm really interested in at the moment, and one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is, what are these objects mm. that have been 3D scanned and then fabricated in some way? Because they're not photographs. Mm. But a lot of them are derived photographically. Um, so how do we think about mm. these things? What are the words to describe them? Because if we think about the photograph, photograph in a sort of traditional sense is you know, light passing through a negative onto a photosensitive paper, burning an image into that paper, and then you have an object. And the thing that we're looking at is a moment in time, right? You're looking at, I often give an example as I'm sitting here in my studio right now, I'm looking at a tree uh, in the courtyard. I've got an Ellsworth Kelly behind the tree, and I've got <laughs> this um, uh, tree. And today the sun's cast on it. There's nobody in the courtyard. Uh, it looks like a nice day. The sky's blue. Um, and so all of that could be captured in a photograph, right? The photograph captures that moment in time. And from different points of view, that photograph might read differently. If hmm. I was to 3D scan the tree, on the other hand, what is that? Because I've removed it from its context. It's no longer, you know, there's no, I mean, I could drop the scan of the tree into a 3D program and see the light shining through it or mimic that. But that's not that moment, right? So what is, right. so what are these things? So that's one of the things I'm really sort of fascinated by from a sort of like theoretical standpoint. And from a more practical standpoint, I'm really interested in sort of publishing this stuff. So my book, Arihan, is very much about uh, an experiment with how can we take these uh, three-dimensional forms, publish them 
in a context that is sort of scholarly as a book, right? That yeah. then allows them to move into things like libraries very freely because we put books in libraries. And so then it sort of, you know, the conversation thing gets very interesting. And then it, you know, then I'm hanging out with librarians as well as engineers and scientists. And so, you know, this hybridization just gets more so and it gets very interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, what make what, what I start to become curious about as you're talking through this is then, you know, we're talking also about art practice here and museum collections and things like that. So I, I sort of then wonder how working with museum collections is helping you answer these questions. I mean, if you're thinking about, well, what is this? What's the language we use for this? How does working in a museum context actually help you approach that? Well, I think that, I mean, one example, so last week um, you mentioned in the intro uh, my work with Tim Samuelson. So I've been working with Tim and we've been 3D scanning using a fairly good 3D scanner, a next engine scanner uh, that's uh, in one of the advanced output centers at the School of the Art Institute. Uh, it's a laser scanner, so it projects uh, laser beams onto the surface of an object, and then it has a series of optical sensors where it records the position of the deformation of the laser against the surface, mm-hmm. and then that gives you your 3D scan, essentially. Mm-hmm. Or it gives you a point cloud, which then becomes a 3D scan. And... So we've been 3D scanning Louis Sullivan's stuff. Um, we've been scanning, uh, the, the book is actually going to be called a young, The Young Man in Architecture, Louis Sullivan Before 30. And these are pieces from Sullivan's oeuvre that in some ways have never been seen by the public, let alone 3D scanned. These are things that, like, for example, the, uh, the piece that we put online last week is from the Barbie House, which was torn down, and I wish Tim was here to correct me on all this, 32nd and Prairie in Chicago. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. of that. I should look on Thingiverse. I could get this right. Um, 32nd and Prairie as uh, a, a tile or a terracotta, rather, from a house. The house has been torn down to make way for development in Chicago. And so this is something that's completely lost to the world. Um, mm-hmm. In the same way that many of the things that exist in museums are, quote-unquote, lost to the world. So they're preserved. They're recorded. They're saved. Um, but the beautiful thing about the 3D scan um, is that then you can scale it. You can you can print it as an object and put it in the hands of somebody, and they can touch it. And no curator is going to freak out about that. Um, right. And you can scale it up and make it the size of a wall. And so change the context and do something interesting with it. You can uh, print it or produce it multiple times. I mean, this is one of the things about Sullivan's work, is it was meant to be seen, in a lot of cases, in the freeze or in an array. And yet all we have left of some of these things is one solitary piece that, you know, people ran into demolished buildings to rescue. And so then you could actually start thinking about that and bring this all back. So last week we published the Barbie house on Thingiverse, uh, put it in the public domain, and it's out there. And, I'm, you know, so people can now do with it as they please. See, I'm finding this quite fascinating because what you're talking about is – um, documenting things. You're talking about documenting sort of Samuelson's work, but you're actually also going through a process of documentation yourself because, it, you know, the scan is itself documentation. It's sort of both documentation and the work. And I think that's quite an interesting duality that what you're doing is documenting things. I mean, you're documenting museum collection objects amongst other things, but it's not just a document. It's both a document and a possible thing itself. Yeah. I mean, do you think about that relationship? 
Well, I think that on the one hand, you have the thing for study, for perusal, for thought, for consideration, for context, for exhibition, for display. And then you also have the thing for production, for reinterpretation, remix, mashing up, collage, production. And depending mm -hmm. upon the copyright of the piece, and I try to work predominantly from things that are in the public domain to avoid that issue, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, then, then you can sort of bring culture back in a way and do new interesting things with it. Um, you know, I'm often, I often say, why, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of that in what I do, but I think there's such a richness already present, you know. And I also think when we think about things like recycling, or when you think about mm -hmm. kind of like electrical waste, for example, right? In, in some cases, there's almost no way of um, efficiently recycling computer hardware. But we're always updating our computers, right? And what do right. we do with that stuff? It just becomes e-waste. So, like, it, what I'm thinking of is this idea of maybe cultural waste, right? I don't know if that's... I've never really thought about it like that way before, but, you know, if we're always making stuff, new stuff, right? But you could also take the stuff that's already been made and reinterpret it. Right. I don't know. Maybe that's a controversial idea, but I sort of... That's sort of interesting. No, I think it is very interesting. So this then makes me wonder how what you've been doing has been received. I mean... You are starting to talk about some really interesting ideas around um, intellectual property and around these sorts of things of something being both a document and a thing itself or a possible creative space. How, how are people receiving these sorts of works? I think fairly well. I mean, my my Orihon, uh, my 3D printed book, I've been distributing through uh, an organization based out of Brooklyn called Brooklyn. Uh, which I think is pretty funny. And they do artist books and multiples. And so they've been distributing uh, Orion for me. And so we've placed it with, uh, with uh, a number of university libraries around the United States, uh, MIT, Yale, uh, Occidental College, uh, a bunch of them I'm forgetting. Um, so that's been really cool because, you know, that's mm. an obvious sort of uh, – acknowledgement i guess of the importance of the objects and the importance of the idea you could also download orihan from thingiverse and you know print it yourself um so you know i'm sort of i guess playing it at both ends that way um right. but then you know the version that we produce is an edition version uh you know uh, and it's you know i'll only make so many of them and frankly I only want to make so many of them because they're quite intensive i mean you're talking about 70 hours of print time um wow yeah yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's rapid, right? Rapid prototyping. Um, but it still takes time. I mean, there's one of the things that when people come into the museum and, you know, they're asking when I'm doing a demo or a demonstration, you know, often people are expecting things to happen instantly or at least within a five-minute, ten-minute window. And I, a lot of people don't really understand that 3D printing actually takes quite a lot of time. These machines, you know, take time to build things and you can't just, you know, press a button and say, make it so, right? And yeah. you know, all grade tea, you know. It's, so, I mean, it's interesting you're talking about the people who come in and see you at the Art Institute. Um, we were talking to Liz Neely about the fact that, you know, the program, this has been built around public programs, is the introduction of 3D printing. What other, what other reactions do the public have? I mean, what do people want to know about 3D printing when they see you working? Well, I try and, you know, I try and address. I try to begin the workshops from my perspective as an artist and through my work and talk about 
uh, contextualize 3D printing and digital fabrication and 3D scanning through my practice and talk about my projects and everything. But on the other hand, I also want to make sure that I answer everybody's questions. And, you know, mm. I mean, as I often say to people, uh, you know, so I, one of the questions I get a lot is bioprinting, right? So we're going to print hu- human organs, right? What is bioprinting? How is this done? You know, it blows people's minds. They see it on Fox News. They've got no idea. And, you know, I'll say them, well, look, you know what? I'm not a doctor. Anything I tell you should not be construed as medical advice. I'm only telling you stuff I've read on the Internet. But, and, you know, but I've got a much better idea of how these things work than most people. And I, I've, I know some people who are doing bioprinting, and I've, I stay up on the subject. I mean, it's one of my sort of main in, sort of I'm really interested in that side of 3D printing. I think that's where it really does begin to change the world. And, and it might not be complex things like printing organs, but printing, which is possible but isn't happening yet exactly. But anyway, it's a different story. Um, but then you've got things like the Enable project, so Enable. And so this is 3D printing prosthetics uh, on MakerBot RepRap-style machines, so on an FDM or FFF-style machine, 3D printing uh uh, prosthetic hands and arms and that you know they use this sort of movement that's in the wrist or the elbow to actually clamp down on something yeah. so it's not perfect but it's a heck of a lot better than nothing and this is the type of thing the kind of grassroots level kind of driven kind of use of the technology is really fascinating and that's partly what i'm sort of really interested in one of the things i really talk about when i do my presentations is i talk about the history of 3d printing i mean most people don't know that it's at least 30 years old most yeah. people don't know that there's a suite of technologies and that yeah. the plastic printing is just one of them. And so one of the things I try and do is contextualize that and give some kind of history. Uh, when I use, when I talk about uh, laser sintering, for example, which is the method that Shapeways uses in the majority of their stuff, um, I usually show a video by this guy called Marcus Kaiser, who's a probably Dutch, German, maybe Belgian artist. He was at the Royal College of Art in London 2011. And he does this thing with a solar sintera, and this blows people's minds. And they see this 3D printer that's basically solar-powered, and it's using the power of the sun to melt sand to make glass. And that just that that's a great video. I've shown that so many times. Um, you know, it's just been super awesome. Um, so I hats off to Mr. Kaiser. One day I've got to meet him and thank him for that because it really helps. It's just well, it's just really nicely shot, and it just resonates on so many levels because. It's a closed loop, right? So when so from that, then it's very easy to start talking about 3D printing on the moon. Wow. And to have a conversation about, well, if we're going to go to the moon or if we're going to go to Mars, are we really going to, you know, take our machines with us? I mean, it's like you're on the, you know, you're on Mars base and it's like, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, this is Mars. Yeah, 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 that thing broke again. Yeah. Uh, two years? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll try and stay alive for that. Okay, all right, thanks, bye. You know, I mean, it's just it's bonkers, right? I mean, we're going to go to the stars, right? We're going to have to make stuff as we go. You know, I mean, there's the company, there's a company called Made in Space. Uh, they're going to put a 3D printer on the space station at some point this year. And I saw a presentation those guys did at Maker Fair in San Mateo, California, in May, and they were saying that they did a sort of like so the Apollo 13 mission, in a sense, is one of the first big hackathons, right? So. They took everything they had, the astronauts had available to them, put it together on the table and said, all right, fix the problem, you've got 24 hours. 
And they figured out that, you know, I think, so the presentation they gave, they said, well, you know, in one hour we designed the part, in two hours we printed it. So, you know, I mean, it's like 3D printers are not the panacea that's going to save, change the world, save everything, but it's, they sure help in some ways, you know. So I think this is, it's about time for us to, to wrap up with this, but you leave us with some interesting questions and some interesting possibilities. And I guess what I'd like to know as we do wrap up is when you think about the future of 3D printing and you think about how this might, if we're talking in a museum context, how this might change museum practice and how it might actually impact interpretation. What do you think actually is, why, why would museums be investing in this in this technology? We're talking about the space race, but how does this help us think, unravel the problems that museums are dealing with? Well, I mean, I think number one, if I was, a, you know, uh, running a fab lab in a museum of science and industry or a sort of museum related to technology, I mean, the obvious, impl- you know, the implications and the uses are, are obvious. And uh, mm. I think that one of, you know, I think that if I'm running a museum of natural history, a uh, fab lab or something, I would be taking 3D, I'd be doing 3D scans, I'd be x-raying fossils, I'd be x-raying uh, seeds and whatnot. I'd be uh, printing them in sort of cross sections and blowing them up so that we can actually look inside these things and see them as they are um, and do them at a fraction of a cost that it would, you know, the model maker might do or anything. Um, I think that in terms of art museums, when it comes to the artifacts and it comes to the uh, objects of antiquity, you know, again, you know, whether it's making exhibition copies that are to scale and look like the original or whether it's a case of just making something that people can hold in their hands and rotate and look at, whether it's a case of being able to download a model from something we saw mm. at the museum. You know, you're a school teacher. You go to the Art Institute of Chicago. You know, your, your class is in Missouri somewhere. You know, you, you get back from the trip and you download and you 3D print all the sculptures you saw, and then you sit and talk about those sculptures. And then you give those sculptures, those scans to the kids, and in, in a modeling program, they change them and reinterpret them. And they make their own works. That seems like a pretty good engagement to me, a pretty good sense of reinterpretation, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Alternatively, before you go to the museum, you download all the stuff, you look at it, and you don't even have to print it. You might just look at the scans and be like, okay, so which piece really excites us? What do we want to go see, guys? And so use that experience to do that. Um, you know, documentation, making digital copies of these things. Once we have the digital copy of it, then, you know, you just put it out into the world and see where it goes. Um, You know, I'm starting to work on an idea that I've got for um, making uh, molds from these uh, pieces and sort of making those Mm -hmm. available. And so I'm actually working up uh, sort of a business plan around that at the moment and uh, hoping to get that on kickstarter at some point in the next couple of months fantastic so yeah so i think i i mean i think that and then the other thing and i think this is why museums so like museums have this kind of central role in communities there's sort of these places where people trust right to some degree i mean i know that's a sort of there's some there's definitely arguments around that idea but i mean i think there's there is a sense of like it's almost neutral ground or it's i don't know maybe maybe that's not true either but um I think the the idea ultimately is interesting is that people come to the museum to find out stuff. And yeah. I guess they can then evaluate whether it's true or not and whether it is to be trusted or not. But people come to the museum to find out stuff and to learn stuff and to verify things. And so 
people have got all these questions about technology and they, there's right now there's no answers like you the media yeah. doesn't provide you anything the internet's only limited and that's even less trustworthy than a museum right and you've got you want a hands-on experience so when you've got when you know that the art institute of chicago has got a 3d printing artist in residence you can come here and see the 3d printers talk to the artist see what he's doing and and get some actual information because where else are you going to get it i mean most people don't know what a hackerspace is you know this play i mean i mean we've we're quite lucky in chicago because we've got the harrow washington library and they've got to make a space um you know we've got a few hackerspaces and make spaces around the city but for you know for a metropolitan area of six million people it's a drop in the ocean so I think if, if museums are interested in, you know, increasing their audience, bringing in um, younger audiences, uh, re-engaging with older audiences, because people who come to my workshops are, you know, seniors who've retired to the very youngest. You know, I've got, you know, big, big range. Uh, a makerspace gives people the opportunity to re-engage, to engage with the collection, to reinterpret it, to learn about technology. It's a place to uh, intersect with uh, science and art and technology. Um, yeah, and it brings people through the doors. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, this has been really, really interesting. If people want to find out more from you, if they want to connect with you online, where can they find you? Uh, Twitter's good, so at T. Burdenwood. Uh, Instagram's good, uh, that's at Tom Burdenwood. Um, you can check out my website, tombertonwood.com. And I have actually got a Tumblr going for the next uh, six weeks or so while I'm doing my artist residence. And that's, I think, AIC3DPAIRTumblr.tumblr.com. And occasionally, I mean, the best thing to do is go to my website. I, I have also been live streaming stuff from the residency. Right. That's a good way for people if they want to watch 3D printing in progress. Um, I think it's slightly less interesting than watching paint dry, but I'll let other people be the judge of that. <laughs> that sounds fantastic, Tom. We will drop uh, links in the show notes for all of those things that you have mentioned. But it's really fantastic. Thank you so much for being part of Museo Punks. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you. So, Jeff, what do you think? I mean, to me, that was a super interesting episode. Digital digital scanning and printing is something I see happening in our sector all the time. I mean, the Smithsonian, I think, just scanned President Obama to do a 3D scan of his head, which is yeah, super interesting. It is. And, you know, it's one of those things where I feel like... I feel like it's it's kind of right on the kind of early crest of the wave and, and people mm. are really kind of interested and investigating it and playing around with it. And that's kind of like the, I mean, I look at other technologies um, that kind of have preceded 3D printing and and see like where, where the most interesting things happen with mm. them. And it feels like very kind of like at this point where it's early on, but it's still at a point where people are, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's accessible and it's, it's um, easy for people to get their hands on a maker bot and that kind of thing. Some really cool stuff happening. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Me too. I actually have to say we have been, we did our first 3d scan since I've been at the museum a couple of weeks ago. And it was so interesting being in the room and watching, watching, the scanning take place of, of Rodin's thinker 
and yeah. actually watching the scan appear on the screen sort of as as the scanning was taking place. And it's this first time that I've been around something of that scale being scanned. And then yeah. we're, we're now thinking about the possibilities for further digitization projects, but also for what we can do with these 3D scans. It's a really interesting time to be playing with these ideas. Yeah, and I think I think also another thing that that you know kind of really interests me, and and especially in the projects that I pursue, both in the museum and and pers- and personally, you know, this idea of technology kind of puncturing into the real world in some way, like mm. like create like 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 getting like getting out of the digital into the physical in some way. And I think three D printing really does that, and and really uh, there's a lot of potential for some really great interactions too. So keep your eye on this, guys. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm going to be doing a little bit of documentation about some of what we've been doing with the scanning and putting it on um, Art BMA's new blog, which you know nice. is one of the things that I'm a little excited about. So it's nice to start being able to play with these ideas and roll them out. For me, yeah. this is one of the lovely things, of course, after you and I've been talking for so long is that now some of the ideas I'm going to get to play with in very different ways from the way I've played with them before. And I think that's really fun too. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. I completely agree. So, so Suze, we have some, uh, you know, some potential um, kind of speaking or um, talks in the, in the future. Um, Where, where can people go to find out about where we're going to be and what we're going to be doing and all that stuff. Look, I think the best places are to follow both of us individually online and also to follow the Museo Punks Twitter feed. We are, you know, we're both active on Twitter and Museo Punks is good for letting, you know, people know about new episodes, but also about things like if we're speaking or any of those sorts of engagements. Yeah, definitely. Tell me about our handle and your handle, Jeff. So you can find Museo Punks at Museopunks or uh, any of the things we talked about in this episode at museopunks.org slash 17 for 17. Yes. Um, and you can also get in touch with me at StaticMade on Twitter or StaticMade.com, which I kind of just redesigned and, and did a little work on. So let me know what you think about that, too. Nice. And How about I, you, Suze? I'm at Shines Like on Twitter and my blog is Museo... Oh, no, Museum Geek. We all know that Museo Punks is where you can find me right here. Museumgeek.wordpress.com. And yeah, I think that is about a show, Jeff. Definitely. So we uh, we will speak next month. That sounds really good. I'm looking forward to it already. Cheers. Bye.